Hey, podcast listeners, welcome back to Brainwaves, an insightful little podcast about neurology and other disciplines in medicine, with some detours into pop culture, trends in science, and the history of medicine. I'm your host, Jim Siegler. And I heard about a case the other day, which is going to terrify you, but I'll tell you anyway. It was probably one of the worst complications of an outpatient procedure that I've ever come across. It's one of those things that you just don't want to believe could happen to a person. Anyway, I'll be talking about the details of that case in an upcoming show with Dr. Adam Rodman on iatrogenesis. To get right to the point though, and to use this as an example for today's program, this was a previously healthy young woman who developed Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy, a severe but oftentimes reversible myocardial stunning with rapid progression to acute systolic heart failure and other complications. This happened to her after receiving a single dose of epinephrine for knee pain. But her condition, Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, can be a consequence of all kinds of pharmacologic exposures, physical injuries, and even psychosocial triggers. It's called the heartbreak syndrome. Two years ago, when I was just getting brainwaves off the ground, I spoke with Dr. David Manley, a rising cardiology fellow at Duke. I guess just a cardiology fellow at Duke. Okay. I think that's so I spoke with Dr. Manley about Takotsubo, and specifically how it can be both a cardiac response to a severe neurologic injury, or how it can be a cardiac risk factor for severe neurologic complications. This is the show that we put together back in 2016, which I've remastered, and added more of David, less of me, and at the end of the interview, I've included a brief update about the progress that's been made with regard to our understanding of this disease process that bridges cardiology and neurologic disciplines. Okay, here's Dr. Manley. Yeah, and the one patient I remember, I think it I think it was on the neurology service. I don't think I was on it, but basically had been there for a few days with acute stroke, and then like a day or so later developed acute onset chest pain and everything else. Uh, she came in with left-sided hemiparesis, uh, a left visual field cut, came up to the neurology service. You know, been watching her really for about 12 to 24 hours when she developed kind of sudden onset of acute chest pain, shortness of breath, uh, with EKG findings of ST elevation. Troponins were checked immediately, which were low-level normal, and the cath lab was activated. She was known to have clean coronaries, but still was sent to the, the CCU and fairly significant heart failure. Uh, and so, you know, this kind of leads into the topic of stress cardiomyopathy and the heart-brain axis. So David, tell me about how acute ischemic stroke can trigger a, a stress-induced cardiomyopathy or at least these EKG changes that we see. Yeah, so that's a, a great question. I'm not sure everything's been fully elucidated yet, but the thought is is that it's microvascular directed ischemia. They have these kind of David and I spent a while talking about the mechanism of action of Takotsubo's and other stress-induced cardiomyopathies, but let me try to summarize it as briefly as I could. It's presumed that massive elevations in serum catecholamines as high as 30 times the normal value over minutes to even hours contribute to this stress-induced cardiomyopathy. It's a sympathetic storm of sorts. However, the mechanism is not so simple. Typically, they present very similar to an acute coronary syndrome where they have you know, substernal chest pain, they have acute onset shortness of breath, and really, it can be a, a very good mimic of an acute coronary syndrome, and that's why. And it's it's under physiologic conditions. Beta one adrenergic receptors in the ventricular myocardium 
which outnumber the beta-2 type receptors 4 to 1, they respond to norepinephrine from sympathetic nerve terminals, and this results in a positive inotropic response, which increases cardiac contractility. Conversely, circulating epinephrine preferentially activates beta-2 adrenergic receptors, which also increases contractility via coupling of the beta-2 receptor with a GS family of GPCR. At supraphysiologic concentrations of epinephrine, there is a negative inotropic effect on the ventricular myocytes, and this results in a net inhibitory response. This response to the catecholamine surge is termed stimulus trafficking, and it remains extensively debated since it does not explain the mechanism for myocyte injury. Kind of within hours, days of presentation, really failed to show actual like cardiac necrosis or ischemia, but there's some degree of microvascular changes. Um, that is Norepinephrine itself may also produce a coronary vasospasm with transient cardiac ischemia, but this is thought to be a secondary insult on top of a primarily epinephrine-induced myocardial stunning. It's also important to realize that Takatsuo is rarely seen after acute ischemic stroke, but it is a recognized complication, particularly with infarcts that involve the insula. And while stress cardiomyopathy has been reported to follow some cases of acute ischemic stroke, it's the causative mechanism of stroke in even fewer cases. Other nervous system diseases triggering Takotsubo or stress cardiomyopathy include subarachnoid or intracerebral hemorrhage, as we've mentioned, epilepsy, migraine, encephalitis, traumatic brain injury, and press. And it's, it's oftentimes in patients who are older postmenopausal women in kind of a 9 to 1 ratio to men. And so it's the people that you would expect could have an acute coronary syndrome. So they're often treated as ACS and kind of until proven otherwise. Besides the EKG and the troponin, are there any other tests that can aid in the diagnosis? And really, the sequence of events that leads to diagnosis is uh, a clean angiogram and then a transthoracic echo that demonstrates wall motion abnormalities that are typical for a stress cardiomyopathy and that are classically outside of the normal coronary circulation. As David mentioned, many cases of Takotsubo or stress cardiomyopathy occur in elderly women who've recently experienced a profoundly psychological or physical stressor. This condition has been reported in survivors of earthquakes and car accidents, as well as those who have survived surprise parties, vicious arguments, and public speaking, but triggers are only identified in 70% of cases. Of the neurologic causes of stress-related cardiomyopathy, 10% of all cases of intracranial injury may produce a reversible Takotsubo-like response. But in cases of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, it's termed neurogenic stress cardiomyopathy, or NSC, which occurs in about a quarter of these patients. Unlike Takotsubo's, which produces ST elevations and most commonly apical ballooning with sparing of basal segments, NSC is identified by QT prolongation in half of cases, ST depression in about a third of patients, and hypokinesis of the basal and or mid-ventricular segments with apical sparing, but sometimes the apex can be involved. In all honesty, Takotsubo's and neurogenic stress cardiomyopathy are probably the same syndrome. Actually, a Japanese term, it was first described in Japan in 1990. These Japanese fishermen will go into the ocean and put it there and kind of octopus would come in and get trapped and that's kind of where the name is derived from due to its echocardiographic findings that look like this pot.
what other kinds of EKG changes would you suspect in somebody who has Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy? Yeah, so they can present, you know, with the classic ST elevation, they can present with ST depression, there are cerebral T waves, where you have these very deep T wave inversions. And that's most classically kind of across the precordium, so V1 to V6. Um, and that's why the kind of the scary thing is that it presents a large LED infarct. And that's why, you know, typically we'll get the cath lab activated very quickly. What is your general approach to managing these patients? So the way that we treat stress cardiomyopathy is similar to any other heart failure syndrome. And that's by improving forward flow and kind of a compromised left ventricle and improving basically perfusion to all the end organs that the, the heart supplies. And one of those is the brain, too. That's important. That is important, I guess. To really simplify it is we just want to improve cardiac output and improve your systolic performance. And the ways we do that are by decreasing afterload and decreasing the impedance that the heart needs to pump again. So that can be done with things like ACE inhibitors, ARBs, hydralazine, nitrates. And we'll similarly do things to decrease congestion that you can see in a failed heart. And that will be with your IV diuretics. In some patients, you really require inotropes to improve your cardiac function. That can be with moronone, dobutamine, uh, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and some hearts just really require a lot of support. And this syndrome can really be along a, a very broad clinical spectrum, whereas 10% can present in cardiogenic shock. And so those patients may require mechanical support to really get through this acute heart failure syndrome. Besides afterload reduction and improvement of cardiac output, some would advocate for anticoagulation in order to prevent mural thrombus formation. There are currently no guidelines for patients with Takotsubo's on short or long-term anticoagulation, but certainly in cases where there is a ventricular thrombus present or patients with a recent stroke, you'd want to consider anticoagulation to prevent recurrent infarction. There was a, a big kind of original article in the New England Journal in 2015 that really helped describe clinical features and outcomes of stress cardiomyopathy. And this was actually done through the International Takasuba Registry, which was a consortium of 26 centers in Europe and the United States. And they looked at patients treated with ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. And patients actually on ACE inhibitors were the only ones to really derive mortality benefit at one year. Uh, beta blockers, which, you know, as we think that the cause of stress cardiomyopathy is from a catecholamine-induced state, actually failed to produce a mortality or life-saving benefit. Interestingly, within this registry, some patients were already on beta blockers and actually developed stress cardiomyopathy, so they weren't even protective of, you know, preventing catecholamine-induced injury, which is what we think is the predominant cause of this acute heart failure syndrome. Is it possible that the supra-physiologic elevations in catecholamines circulating in the serum and also from the synaptic terminals just outnumber the beta blockers and maybe that's just overwhelming the antagonist response? Yeah, it certainly could be that it's kind of a competitive agonism and, you know, it really just overwhelms the degree of beta blocker. But really, they looked at a, a big spectrum of patients and compared to patients not on beta blockers, it really failed to show prevention of stress cardiomyopathy. Really, the clinical course of patients presenting with Takasubo stress cardiomyopathy can really span a spectrum of really kind of mild transient systolic dysfunction to cardiogenic shock. And some of the things that can really 
predict which patients will have a higher morbidity mortality during their course can be the presence of physical triggers rather than kind of acute neurologic or psychiatric disease. There's a, a troponin that really measures over 10 times the upper limit of normal level, or if they have a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 45%, those patients will have a higher incidence of mortality or in-hospital complications. One of the things that actually was described within this Takasuba registry was that, you know, it, it really is a clinical syndrome that has high morbidity and mortality associated with it. Some of the complications that you may see span from ventricular tachycardia in about 3%, ventricular thrombus in 1.3%. So it is quite rare, and that's why we don't routinely anticoagulate. And ventricular rupture is ex- exceedingly rare. Some of the kind of long-term outcomes this, this study uh, revealed was that there is an increased rate of death per year in patients with a, a stress cardiomyopathy and a increased risk of cerebrovascular events. Longitudinally, from this Takotsubo's registry, the rate of death from any cause was about 5.5% per patient year, and the rate of any cardiac or cerebrovascular events was 9.9%. Both of these event rates were much greater for men compared to women, although this is a predominantly female disease. So it certainly is not as benign a condition as was previously thought. So that's what we put out in June of 2016. It's two years later now, so what advances have we made? We left off at the end of our program with Dr. Manley describing some of the outcomes of patients with this type of a reversible cardiomyopathy. And nowadays, we've got even more data on this, as centers have been more aggressive with following these patients over the long term. One German study, which I'm going to talk about for the rest of the program, was published in the European Heart Journal by Stiermeyer and colleagues, and they reported the results of 286 patients with Takotsubo who were followed over about four years. They compared these patients with age and gender-matched STEMI controls, patients who suffered significant myocardial infarction. Mortality was the primary outcome measure, and what the investigators found, I guess, was not all that surprising. Compared to patients with ST-elevation myocardial infarction, patients with stress cardiomyopathy were 58% more likely to die by follow-up. They were more likely to die than people with heart attacks. As Dr. Manley mentioned earlier, poor outcomes were driven by male patients, and the death in this study was due to conditions unrelated to their cardiomyopathy. The death by heart disease was no different between those with STEMI and those who had Takotsubo. So Takotsubo was associated with death, but it was not associated with a cardiovascular death. You can think about why this was. Maybe the patients weren't matched all that well on other comorbidities. Well, actually with nearly 300 patients per group, the major vascular comorbidities were pretty evenly matched. Hypertension, tobacco use, dyslipidemia. But diabetes, on the other hand, was more common in the STEMI population. Well, maybe if the outcomes weren't driven by cardiac or vascular diseases, then maybe they were driven by complications of their cardiomyopathy. More apical ballooning, or poor systolic function, or higher CK. Could these have been driving the mortality? While these are clearly unfavorable functional metrics for either patient group, none of them actually independently predicted mortality. It turns out that the independent predictors of mortality, besides the Takotsubo process, these were male sex, diabetes, and more severe clinical signs of heart failure, as measured by the Killip class. 
Other systematic reviews and meta-analyses have corroborated these findings, and other comorbidities like obesity have been associated with Takotsubo and an increased risk of death. But you'd expect these to increase your risk of cardiovascular mortality, not all-cause mortality, right? This study leaves us with more questions than answers. And maybe patients who died, they died because of strokes, or maybe because of fatal pulmonary edema, or pneumonia, or some other disease as a consequence of their heart failure. Since our original 2016 episode, I've also come across some more incredible and unique case reports of patients with this heartbreak syndrome. We already mentioned that it can happen after severe brain injury, usually due to an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, and rarely following cerebral infarcts. But there was also a case in 2018 of a young American woman who developed it because of a Zumba class. I mean, Zumba! Another guy suffered it following a bar fight. One lady I read about developed Takotsubo out of an overwhelming fear of being deported. She had lost her job and was divorced three years later and had lost her home and was just overwhelmingly more afraid of what the country would do to her. And then there was also the patient that was seen at my center after receiving a single dose of epinephrine, which we're going to discuss again in a later episode. It's kind of horrifying when you think about it, to learn more and more that this reversible cardiomyopathy which can be triggered by the most innocuous or common daily experiences, well, maybe not for bar fights for most of you, that this heartbreak syndrome does carry significant long-term risk and even threatens your life more than having a heart attack. Hopefully, as we learn more about the underlying pathophysiology, we'll be able to study more targeted interventions in order to prevent these adverse outcomes and maybe even mend these broken hearts. That wraps it up for the program this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you feel like you learned something today or you enjoyed the show, please let us know by rating the program on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As a reminder, Brainwaves is produced out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm Jim Siegler, the senior producer. Huge thanks again to Dr. David Manley for his help with the program in 2016. Music for today's program was courtesy of Ryan Little and Lee Rosevere. Sound effects by Mike Kunick and Daniel Simeon. I hate to keep telling you this, but I have to remind you that the Brainwaves podcast and online content are intended for medical education and entertainment purposes only, not for routine clinical decision making. And with that, I'll fade up the music. I'm Jim Suga for Brainwaves. Thanks for listening. I keep saying things backwards, but it's right. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs>